Let's bow together. Father, thank you again for this morning, and I do pray as we look into your word that you would use it greatly in our lives so that you would be magnified and exalted and glorified in the outcome. So we pray that you'd bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today, in this days that we live in, I think we see an epidemic. Uh, we had the uh, COVID epidemic, whatever that might be. We have an epidemic of epic proportions in churches these days. Uh, we have church after church after church uh, doing things man's way, uh, taking man's wisdom, man's ways, doing church man's way, rather than uh, functioning according to what God has shared in his word. The church is greatly corrupted by man's wisdom. Uh, I remember uh, uh, being taught that in seminary and having to, uh, in a sense, write two papers. Here's what you're saying. Here's what God's word says. Uh, the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2 uh, said when he came to the Corinthians, he did not come with superior speech or wisdom proclaiming the testimony of God. And we see that their faith wouldn't rest in the wisdom of men, but the power of God. And the reality is, uh, it comes down to leadership in those churches. Now, people want to have their ears tickled, and they choose for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires, and they're culpable for that. But there are also false teachers and corrupted leaders and, uh, and uh, deceived and uh, uh, disobedient brethren. And so how are leaders to address these things, even within the church? How are godly leaders to address leaders who have strayed and are, are bringing forth uh, uh, worldliness into the church, worldliness into worship uh, about me and you rather than about the, our great God, worldliness into the pulpit, uh, whether it's uh, just dialoguing with someone and not preaching or whatever it is, those evil things. How are leaders to address that? Well, today we come to our last message in the book of Nehemiah. And as we come here, we're going to see and get a lesson from Nehemiah on confronting and cleaning out worldly defilement. So would you turn your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 13, and we are going to be looking at uh, verses 23 through 31. And I may be throwing my glasses on and off. My printer went bad earlier. I told you about that, and I've got another printer, a little lighter ink here. So as I get older, my eyes grow dimmer, you know. So, <laughs> But uh, hopefully we won't miss any words here. But uh, as we've been studying the book of Nehemiah, it's been a wonderful study. It's been a wonderful book. And I look forward to even uh, going through it again as we produce it for the radio for next year. And that's a blessing to be able to listen to it again and to hear it and to go through it. And so, Lord willing, that will start in the beginning of the year. But here we, we've seen uh, from the first uh, chapters of the book, the first six chapters, the physical rebuilding of the walls. Nehemiah, a godly man, is heartbroken over what he hears in Jerusalem. And, and he uh, then was led to pray and, and, and recognizes that the Lord is going to use him to come help out with the walls that are torn down, the gates that are burned. And he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia, and he is given permission because God's good hand was upon him. And he came, and he had to deal with all kinds of opposition. We'll see some of those guys today. But opposition uh, in rebuilding the wall, and by God's grace and through his mercy and his good hand upon them, they were able to rebuild the physical walls and the gates, uh, gates of Jerusalem in 52 days. 
And so at that point, we came to chapter 7, where it was clear that there was not enough people living in Jerusalem, and there was not enough, uh, uh, there was no houses, hardly any houses, and so it needed to be populated. And your logical conclusion would be, okay, hey, walls are done, bring the people in to do it. But here in the book of Nehemiah, we began to see and understand that the people needed to be rebuilt also. And so in chapters 8 through 10, we saw the spiritual rebuilding of those Jews. We saw that it was them that called for Ezra to bring them the word. And they listened all the way down to their little children. They listened all who could understand. And they had the Levites who declared the word in a stinging fashion so that they would understand and comprehend. And they responded. They repented of their sin. They saw the reality. We see this in the end of chapter 9 that everything they were experiencing, the hardship of being under the hand of Persia, being in the land that was given to the Jews, but yet being slaves in their own land, being in that land, um, was because of their sin and their father's sin. And they acknowledged that and they confessed their sin. And within that, they committed to obeying the Lord and obeying his word. And that's what we need to do when we repent. We need to be committed to obeying his word. Lord, I want to obey your word. And they noted, they shared three specific areas in which they had failed. One was in relationship to intermarriage, which we'll see today. The second one was in relationship to the Sabbath, which we saw last week. And the third was in relationship to neglecting the house of God, which we saw the week, two weeks before. And so here, they have made a commitment to obey. And then we saw the grand, wonderful uh, dedication of the walls, uh, just a tremendous uh, lesson for us on the worship of the living God. And uh, within that, this, this wonderful uh, portion, we saw that there needed to be leadership and that it needed to be skilled. There needed to be skilled servants assigned to certain tasks. And there needed to be a planning in this, and it needed to be pure. It needed to be pure. And we saw that in this organization that they needed to make sure that it was immersed in God-glorifying music, God-glorifying music, and that God's word was preached and that there was worshipful offering and that the focus was on a sacrifice, which that focus would point to this ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we came at the end of that portion, the end of chapter thir- thir- or beginning of chapter 13, the end of that dedication, they preached the word of God and they were convicted. They read uh, concerning how uh, the Ammonites and the Moabites didn't treat Israel well when they were coming to the land and that they recognized that they were not supposed to be associating with them and they obeyed. And so we have this happening and then we came into uh, chapter 13. We came to chapter, the, the second portion of 13, or the latter portion of the book, starting in verse 5, where Nehemiah, uh, it's 12 years later, and he sees that uh, the high priest has allowed Tobiah to have a room in the, in the temple. Can you believe that? Tobiah, the, the Ammonite, this bad guy, this false brother, this guy who was, who was an, an enemy of the Lord and of his people, Nehemiah, he's got a room in the temple, and they've made uh, cleared out areas which were supposed to be for the storing of the tithes for the Levites and the singers. And so they just went home because they, they didn't have money. They had to go to their fields to make money to provide for their families. We saw that, and Nehemiah took care of that. He kicked him out right away, and he reestablished and brought back the ties and got everybody going rightly and functioning in the table. And then we saw last week 
the Sabbath, that they were breaking. This had been 12 years, and all of a sudden Nehemiah sees this, and they're doing work on the Sabbath. Uh, they're, they're letting these foreign merchants come in from Tyre and sell stuff. And Nehemiah, man, he is on this, and he addresses it. He addresses as each one of these areas, he addresses the evil that is being done. Now the Sabbath was a picture. It was a picture. It was of of resting in 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 the Lord, and ultimately our salvation rest, which we have in Jesus Christ. The Sabbath was a shadow, and Christ is the substance. The substance. So it's very important. Those shadows pointed to something important. So they needed not to be broken. They needed to rest. And there were some other applications for us concerning money and and work that we need to trust the Lord. We need to trust the Lord. We need to work hardly unto Him, but we need to trust Him. We need to rest in him. And that leads us to today where we're going to see the last thing that Nehemiah deals with before this book ends. So again, turn your Bibles to Nehemiah 13, and let's start in verse 23. In those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. As for their children, half of them half spoke in the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak in the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck them, some of them, and pulled out their hair and made some of them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? Yet among The many nations, there was no king like him, and he was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused even him to sin. Do we then hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God, against our God by marrying foreign women? Even one of the sons of Joida, Joeda, uh, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, uh, was a son-in-law to Sanballat the Horonite. So I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I purified them from everything foreign and appointed duties for the priests and the Levites, each to his task, and I arranged for a supply of wood and appointed times and for the first fruits, uh, remember me, O oh my God, for good. Kind of interesting because we think of the book of Nehemiah as just building the walls, right? That's almost how it is unanimously uh, spoken of, the walls being rebuilt. And that's certainly part of it, but it's not all of it. It's not even half of it, actually. Um, and then we, it's just like how we look at Jonah. Jonah, just a big fish story. Well, no, that's not it. Right? It was about uh, a disobedient prophet and a repentant people and God's compassion, God's compassion. And so here we have this final portion of the book of Nehemiah. And in this, it's going to address worldly defilement within the people and within the leadership and how to deal with that. Now, you might remember that uh, these things in the Old Testament are written for our instruction. Uh, that we might not, First Corinthians chapter 10, crave evil things. It talks about Moses and, the, and all the wickedness of the Israelites in the desert, First uh, Corinthians chapter 10, and that the, these things are written for our instruction, right? And we see even in, uh, in Romans chapter 15, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, 
that through the perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And he goes on, Romans 15, 5, and it's God who gives that perseverance and encouragement. But it comes through the word of God. So we're instructed not to crave evil things, but we're also encouraged. We're encouraged too. You see, if you're doing the right thing, it's difficult. And you need to be encouraged that you are on the right track, that you are doing what God wants you to do. You need to be encouraged. We see Nehemiah saying, remember me, O God, for, for good. He needs to have, know that the Lord is, 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 is aware, and he is, and we'll talk about that later on, but to act upon those things. And we also need to be careful that we're not like them, where we fall back into sin, which we so clearly repudiated earlier. We said no to that, we're going to follow you, Lord, and all of a sudden, years go by and we're coming back into that sin. We're going to see that these are not unbelieving Israelites like in the desert. They are believers at this point. Uh, now, certainly some of them maybe there's always, a, there's always some that aren't, but in a, in, in a sense, they are those of the Lord. We'll see that. We saw that earlier when they responded to the word of God. But sin has entered in, and there are great consequences. You see, Israel and the church are not the same. Uh, but but they are, before we had God working through Israel, now he's working through the church. And he will again for seven years work through Israel and bring about their salvation. But there are some principles that cross over in terms of our assembling together and our focus on the Lord. And so here we're going to see and be instructed uh, how good leadership addresses corruption and worldliness in the church. So with that in mind, notice godly leaders immediately and strongly confront those whose sin threatens the congregation. They address it right away. Now, we know love covers a multitude of sins. We know, God, that, that if, there's, uh, if, if there's anyone's caught in a trespass, you were a spiritual. Galatians, restore such a one of spirit. Then be careful you're not tempted. We know if the brother sins uh, continually, habitually, uh, you're going to go privately and expose that and try to win your brother. If he doesn't respond, bring two or three witnesses. Uh, same thing for the purpose of restoring. Uh, and if not, tell it to the church. If he doesn't listen to the church, put him out as an unbeliever that Satan will work on him they might turn rightly and and respond treat him as an unbeliever but here you know this there are certain sins in the body of christ that the that the uh leaders have to deal with right away you have to deal with right away in uh romans chapter 16 paul's saying uh, uh so and so says uh, greetings this and that greeting and he stops in the middle and he says keep your eyes on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contra the teaching and turn away from them and he says, for they're not slaves of Christ, but they're slaves of their own appetites. He's going to say that. They're not, they're not the Lord's. And so there are some things you've got to take care of. You've got to do right away. Uh, in in uh, Titus chapter 3, uh, Paul tells Titus uh, concerning leadership, reject a factious man after a first and second warning, knowing he's perverted and sinning. There are some things that need to be done right away. Now, we also know in 1 Timothy chapter 5 that leaders are not to be accused just by one person. Now, there's to be those that come, and if it's truly the case, they're to be admonished, and if they continue in sin, they're rebuked in the presence of everyone. We see that. But here, we gain some principles about weeding out and driving out uh, that which is evil. Proverbs talks about drive out the scoffer, and contention will cease. 
doesn't talk about a process of going one, two, three. It says drive out the scoffer. There's certain things that need to be done in the church that are not being done, and we are reaping the worldly consequences in the generations that come through and choose to have their ears tickled in those churches. So here, Nehemiah saw something, and it wasn't good. Look at verse 23. In those days, I also saw... He's talking about, this is the third thing he saw. First of all, he saw the, 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 the Tobiah incident in the temple. And then second, the, the, the issue with, uh, with the Sabbath being broken. And now he says, I also saw. And it's in those days. This is the time period that we've seen, which is at least 12 years past the dedication of the temple, which went up to verse chapter uh, 13, verse 4. It's at least 12 years afterwards. And Nehemiah mentioned earlier in the chapter that he had gone away back to the king, and he comes back. And we're going to see that somehow this intermarried happened somewhere within this 12 years, but there was enough time for kids to be born and to actually speak, uh, be able to speak. That's a, like one and a half, two years, you know, whatever, however it takes for kids to speak. But, uh, you know, but uh, they were able to speak, but they weren't speaking the Hebrew language, as we'll see, in those days. And so what did he see? That Jews, and that's speaking of the Jewish people in Judah, so it's not speaking of leadership at this point, speaking of Jews could include leaders, but speaking of Jews here, that Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Are you kidding me? Is that, poor Nehemiah, he's a godly man. He goes away for a little bit. It's kind of like Moses on the mountain. That was only 40 days, but still, Nehemiah goes away, comes back, and man, oh, there's all this sin. All this sin. And he says here that they had married, there's intermarriage, Jews had married. This means they were dating, they were marrying, whatever it was. They were courting, whatever people do, you know, and they got married. And we'll see they had kids. This is a life commitment in a sense. This is a serious thing. And he said they had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. What's going on? We know earlier, 12 years earlier, they had been convicted, chapter 10, verse 28, to no longer take wives from the sons and daughters from the peoples of the land. They said, we will follow the Lord. We're no longer going to do that. We're stopping. We know that Ezra had to deal with this back in Ezra also. They're stopping. We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. We live in the world, folks, and the world is tempting. Uh, people are made in God's image, but there are people who don't know the Lord. The majority of people don't know the Lord. And, and and it is tempting to enter into that. It is tempting to rationalize things for yourself. But we're going to see there are great consequences when that happens within the church. Now, this is a body of believers. This is the nation of Israel. So kind of similar to the church. You know, when the church gets defiled, like here the nation of Israel is being defiled. So similar, not the exact same, but we can learn from it. So they had made a commitment. And you remember back earlier in chapter 9, verses 30 to 38, they recognized that it was those very sins that caused God's judgment and heavy hand upon them. And they have gone back and they have married. And evidently, as I mentioned, it's probably been a few years because they've got children. They got children from these relationships. And so the first place he mentions is Ashdod. Ashdod. This was one of the former prominent five Philistine cities. It's about 30, the current Ashdod, which is probably the location of the old one, we think, is about 37 miles west of Jerusalem on the coast. 37 miles west of Jerusalem on the coast there. It is between Gaza and Tel Aviv, basically. Right in that area, that's where it was. 
Um, now, remember, the Philistines had been wiped out in the 6th century because of God's judgment upon them. Indeed, in Ezekiel 25 and Zechariah 9.6, which we'll look at in a minute, uh, God had made it clear he was going to wipe out the enemies of Israel, and because the Philistines were vengeful and revengeful, he was going to destroy them. And he did. But yet there was a remnant. And there was, excuse my French, but this is the word used to describe, there was a bastard remnant. Okay, And we'll see that in a minute. That's the exact word that is used here in the scripture. And so this remnant, actually, let's turn to Zechariah 9.6. Zechariah 9.6. So they're no longer quote-unquote Philistines, but there's a remnant there, an evil remnant. The term uh, mongrel that we'll see speaks of a bastard or a child of incest. That's what it means in Hebrew, and so I'm just telling you what it means. What it means. Zechariah 9.6. And a mongrel race, this is after uh, talking about their judgment, Philistines, and a mongrel race will dwell in where? Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And guess what? The Lord did do that, as he did with the surrounding nations, as he promised. He didn't want Israel to take revenge on them. He was going to take care of it. Vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. And so Ashdod uh, had this mongrel race, this incestual city, this, 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 this remnant, this evil remnant. And you've got these guys... Marrying daughters from them. Marrying, uh, marrying, uh, people from Ashdod. Not a good thing. Now remember, Ashdod back in the Philistine time was where that, uh, Dagon incident was. Now you can, you can look that up, okay? Look that up and I think it's in 1st Samuel, but, uh, look that up. And so we have this, them intermarrying with women from Ashdod. Ashdod, not a good thing. And then notice he says Ammon and Moab. Now, you might remember because of Lot's sin um, after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, the, 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 the destruction from God's uh, judgment that he brought about, that in Lot's sin we have the Ammonites and the Moabites. And they were always a thorn in Israel's side. They were always their consummate enemies. We see that in Psalm 83. You can read that too. I don't have time to read it this time. Psalm 83 talks about Ammon and Moab, the, the, the children of Lot. It even talks about the Philistines and how they hate the Lord and thus want to destroy and wipe out Israel. Hey, nothing's changed, right? Nothing's changed. And so you have these, uh, these races. Now, there were some. Uh, like there was Ruth and and uh, and Rahab, right, uh, who came to faith in the Lord, but by and large these nations were pagan nations, and they were pagan nations whom God gave time to repent. We know that Israel, part of Israel being so long in Egypt, was to give time for the fullness uh, 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 of the sin to come in with within the land. We see that in Genesis, okay, and uh, so here. Uh, we have uh, these these uh, uh, horrible, horrible uh, nations having the Jews are marrying the women from there. Now, remember uh, uh, the Ashdodites with Tobiah and even Sandal back in chapter 4, verses 7 and 9, they all conspired to come and fight against Jerusalem. These are not your friends. These are spiritual enemies. But guess what? When you're living a worldly lifestyle, your spiritual enemies are no longer enemies. They're a possible spouse. It's very terrible, right? But here we have this going on. So we have this. Now, one might ask, are interracial marriages prohibited in Scripture? Well, don't forget, Moses married a Midianite woman. Ruth the Moabite married Boaz, but uh, she had faith in the, Lord, in the Lord. She had faith in the Lord. 
And we see, although God's word does not prohibit those, there might be cultural consequences, but the Bible clearly prohibits marriage to an unbeliever. Clearly prohibits it. And we see here uh, that he prohibits it. Uh, we know, and I mentioned this earlier, but that uh, you know the Lord was gracious to let the sin of the, the iniquity of the Amorite be complete. Uh, Genesis 15, 16, which implies he was hoping they would repent. He was desiring them to repent. He desires all men to repent, right? We see that. And so, but they didn't. And so they were going to be wiped out uh, in judgment. Now, the real issue to not intermarry with the Canaanites was because they were unbelievers. And the real issue was they would turn your heart away from the Lord. That's the big issue. Turn to Exodus chapter 34. This is why God warned. God doesn't just say, don't do this and that. He gives us, he's gracious to give us the reasons. And if we, uh, if we don't obey, we will suffer the consequences because God's word is true. His word is true. Exodus 34, verse 11. Be sure to observe uh, what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the the, the Parasite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Sounds like a great exterminator, right? Um, he says, uh, "Watch yourself that you make no covenant. That's no 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 agreement. No no agreements. You're not yoking yourself with them. No covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, lest it become a snare in your midst." But rather, you are to tear down their altars. Now, this is some religious stuff. See this? Tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, cut down their ashram, for you shall not worship any other god. For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land and play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invites you to eat of his sacrifice, and you take some of his daughters for your sons and his daughters to play the harlot with their gods. And cause your sons to also play the harlot with their gods. And turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7. The implication there was these marriages, they were, the, the parents would make the deals. The marriage, now we know, like with Samson, he was like making the deal with his parents. I want her. She looks good in my eyes. Delilah, right? They were warning him. He didn't respond. Okay. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's look at that. Deuteronomy 7. When the Lord your God shall bring you into the land where you are entering to possess it and shall clear away many nations for you. Now, remember, you got the law, and then they wandered, and then you got Deuteronomy, Deuteronomos. It's the, it's the second law. It's not the second law. It's just being repeated again. It's being restated as they're on the plains of Moab getting ready to go into the land. When the Lord your God shall bring you to the land where you are entering to possess it and clear away many nations before you, the Hittites and the Girishites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Parasites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God shall deliver them before you and you shall defeat them, then you shall utterly destroy them. Now people say, oh, how can you do that? It's terrible. God's a terrible God. Well, no, God gave them time to repent. And God brings judgment if people don't repent. And this would be a judgment against them for not repenting. And so he says here, you shall, so you shall utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them and show no favor to them. Furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. Very clear. Uh, you shall not give your daughters to the sons, nor take, nor sh- shall you take their daughters for your sons. For here's the reason. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods and, 
and then the angel of the Lord will be anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly he will quickly destroy you. Uh, but thus you shall do to them: you shall tear down their altars, smash their sacred pillars, hew down their ashram, and burn their graven images with fire. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for His own possession out of the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now, there's some similar language to the church. The church is not Israel, but we're his people. We're to be holy. We're to be separate, right? We're not to be entering into these things. We saw earlier, we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. Second Corinthians chapter 6. And so then, he sees this. Poor guy. Nehemiah, man, he's a good guy. And he comes back, and what is going on? What is going on? And notice the consequences. There are consequences to sin, just like God would say. And share. Verse 24, back in Nehemiah 13. As for their children, that's the people who married the Ash, that's the men and women that married the, the, married the women of the Ashdod, Abed, and Moab. And for their children, half spoke the language of Ashdod. That's a lot. There's a lot of, a lot of intermingling with the Ashdodites, by the way. And none of them were able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. This is serious stuff. This is serious problem, a serious problem. Now, the reason why it's so serious, certainly because they disobey the Lord. But secondly, the language of Judah is Hebrew. That's how the word of God is coming forth. You might remember when they were humbled, they all assembled, even those who were young enough to understand. And they listened. Now the young ones are going to be there like, they're not going to understand it because they don't understand the language because of the intermarriage. Very sad. Some might think it's not a big deal, but it's a big deal. And it threatens, actually, Israel's existence as a nation. Very serious thing. Very serious thing. And here we obviously see the women are raising the children because they're not speaking Hebrew. They're speaking the language of Ashdod and the other nations. They don't even know Hebrew, okay? Hey, we see this in the United States, right? In a, in, a, in a cultural sense, you have people from, from Mexico, Russia, Ukraine, and you see their children speaking the language of their parents rather than English. Now, this shows an allegiance to those countries. It might not be bad. Some of those cultures are not bad. Some are bad. It's a cultural issue. The point is, it shows the allegiance to the culture that is most important to you, the language that you have your children speak. You see that. And so here, uh, we have this here where they have taken up the language of these nations rather than Hebrew. And it, it is an evident that this happens here, that this is, is happening because they disobeyed the Lord. So with these intermarriages, these children, they did not speak Hebrew. And they obviously they couldn't read it either, right? And again, this is so bad because they couldn't listen to the word of God, the word of God, the word of God. So then we have a new generation growing up that doesn't understand Hebrew. Serious consequences to sin. Serious consequences. And it has to do with an allegiance, you see. And when you have a mixed marriage, as we will see, there is mixed allegiances. And there's child's going to choose one or the other. Whatever's more strong, child's going to choose that. You're going to see it. And there's a battle going on, as we're going to see. And, and by and large, the Lord makes it clear that usually the battle is, is, is lost in a sense that the child will be turned to worship other gods. That's what we see. Serious consequences. So Nehemiah wrote a letter and said, hey, you know, you guys shouldn't be doing this. No, he didn't do that, right? Notice what he did. 
So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God. This is pretty serious. This is a serious breach of faithfulness to the Lord, as we're going to see. A serious covenant breach. And Nehemiah is righteously angry. We know the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God, but there is a righteous anger at times. We know don't let the sun go down in your anger, right? Don't let it, don't let it, don't, don't be, be angry and sin not. And Nehemiah contended with them. He contended with them. He is, in a sense, uh, righteously angry in that moment, righteously contending at least, at least. So think about it. One of the very sins that caused them to go into exile, their disobedience and, and be, be enslaved in the land, they're now doing it again. They're doing it again. And Nehemiah comes back and sees this and sees this. They have absorbed in the culture of their mother's wicked Canaanite culture. Now, on a side note, don't fool yourself. If you marry an unbeliever, their influence will be as great or greater than yours on your children. Don't be fooled. This is a real problem for the children. Which parents are they going to believe? Who's going to be teaching them? Uh, what are they going to learn? There's the real possibility they will not follow the Lord, but follow the way of the unbelieving parent. It's very serious. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. God says very clearly back in, in those two passages we read that they will turn their hearts away from the Lord. Very serious, very serious. You see, one biblical reason for having kids is to raise a godly legacy, that they would grow up in the fear and admonition of the Lord and trust him. Deuteronomy 6, God commands parents to teach the word diligently to their sons, to talk about it day and night. That doesn't happen when one parent is not saved. It doesn't happen when one parent's not saved. Don't fool yourselves, brothers and sisters, if you marry a non-believer or someone who isn't committed to Christ. They may say they believe, but look at their life. Are they Christ-like? The influence will be as great or greater in your children. It'll be a very real painful problem, and may I say consequence, maybe all your life. Maybe all your life. So Nehemiah contended with them. This is a good leader. There is corruption, worldly corruption in the assembly, and he contended with them. They had committed to, disobey, to, to not disobeying anymore. They made a commitment in writing. Nehemiah comes under that authority in the context of their relationship with the Lord. They've committed to follow the Lord, and he comes in that authority. He says he contended with them, and he says he cursed them. Now, wait a second. We kind of think of cursing in a couple of ways, but it's not what's happening here. Cursing, we think of it as swearing or curse words or whatever that means. That's not what this is speaking of here. We also speak of cursing like that voodoo weird stuff, you know, or witchcraft cursing. That's not what's being spoken of here. The term curse here in this context is to declare something bad to happen upon someone based on something God has said. So if I say, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals, that in a sense is a, cur is a curse if you do it. It's going to come upon you. Your morals are going to be corrupted. You see, uh, we know, in, and this always verse always kind of bothered me in, in, in Proverbs, a curse without a cause does not alight. Thinking, well, we shouldn't be cursing, should we? No, saying a statement of, 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 of badness or whatever it might be based on someone's behavior, if it's without a cause, it doesn't go forward. It doesn't light, you see? That's what that's saying. So here, he cursed them, and I'm sure the curse was in light of the truth of God, which we'll see in a little bit. 
you have disobeyed God, and it's, your, your children are going to be turned away, and they are being turned away. He's cursing them in a sense, right? We know from Deuteronomy 28 to 30, there were the cursings and the blessings. We know in Genesis that God cursed the serpent. What did he do? He said, this is what's going to happen to you because of what you did, right? He cursed the ground, right? We see that. Speaking uh, evil. Blessing's the opposite. Speaking good, right? Now, there could be a blessing that's not based on truth, and that's not really a blessing, just like curse that aren't, right? But here, he said here uh, that he contended and cursed them. And notice what he did. He struck some of them. Oh, and I'm not saying pastors should be striking people in church, right? <laughs> um, the reality is the law had a provision. Deuteronomy 25.2, for those deserving to be beaten according to their guilt. It had a provision for it. And Nehemiah was the governor. He was. He had the authority to do so. And there were some, evidently, that were worthy of getting struck. And he pulled out their beards, Right? That's a, that's a, now, interesting, Ezra, when he saw the same thing, he pulled out his own beard. And now Nehemiah pulls out the right beards. He pulls out the ones of the people that are doing it, right? That's a sign of shame, a visible sign of shame. So this is serious. The whole point is this is serious. This is a serious sin that affects generations concerning their relationship with the Lord. And notice, he made them swear by God. And this is only in the context of those who had committed to it before. He's not making some pagan swear to not take daughters. These are people who had committed to the Lord. They had turned to him. They had said, we're not going to do this anymore. And they got caught red-handed doing it. And he's saying, you need to swear by God not to do this. And so he says, you made us swear by God. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He made them swear by God to no longer do this. Now, some might think, hey, this is missing overreaction. Nehemiah is kind of overreacting here. He's got a little problem. Well, no, it's not an overreaction at all. Nehemiah is exhibiting godly leadership, Old Testament leadership, but we can learn from that and apply it uh, and be instructed by it. So notice, uh, he now reproves them after contending with them with the word. He reproves them with the word, sharing the truth concerning Solomon. Verse 26, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin regarding these things? He didn't. Don't you remember what happened with Solomon? The whole nation was divided and eventually went into exile, both north and south. Exile. Solomon sinned. It was because of that. And he says here, yet among many nations, there was no king like him. You know, he's the wisest king ever, right? Because of asking for wisdom, didn't he? And God gave it to him. And he was loved by God. This is a guy who God loves. This is a guy who had the greatest wisdom on earth, and yet even he sinned. So don't you think you can do this and get away with it? You don't have the wisdom of Solomon. Uh, you may be loved by God. That's your excuse. So he loves me, I'll be fine. Well, Solomon was loved, and he sinned. And notice what it says here. No, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, the foreign women caused, notice this phrase, even him to sin. Nehemiah's driving it home, man. You need to recognize you, you've messed up. This is very evil. This is wrong. He's going to say that in a minute. He's going to talk about how evil and unfaithful they are to the Lord. Very serious, serious sin. And if you, by the way, have married an unbeliever, you have been doing, you've done evil. You have been unfaithful to the Lord. Now, God is gracious. We'll talk about this later. He can mitigate some of those consequences, but you're going to reap from the flesh. David did with his sin. 
Uh, Solomon did with his sin, right? We see the nation reap from that also. But you might be used by God to warn others not to do what you did. God will still use you. God is gracious. He's kind. But there are consequences. And this is a big sin. This is a big sin. Don't do it. Indeed, you can go into... Actually, let's go to 1 Kings 11 because it talks a little bit about Solomon. I'm just going to read one portion of it. Wisest man, but uh, even he did it. Loved by God, even he did it. Even him. See, we've got to be remembering the Word of God when we're about to... When we're about to uh, we've got to remember the Word of God when we're about to, to make choices, about it, especially big choices. 1 Kings 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Uh, bad news. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edenite, Sidian, and Hittite women from nations concerning with which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, neither shall you asso- they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. This is a very serious consequence. Solomon held fast in love to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princes, and 300 concubines, a whole bunch of mother-in-laws too, right? Uh, it doesn't say that there. but uh, And his wives turned away his heart. Heart, turned his heart away. For it came when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after the Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milk, and the detestable idol of the Ammonites. And I, you could keep reading. They turned his heart away. Consequence. You can be a believer and have your heart turned away. Very serious, but there are consequences. Very serious consequences. And if you have failed, you need to humble yourself and acknowledge how great this sin is. How great this sin is. Take a look back in our passage. He says here in verse 27, Do we hear about you that you have committed all this great evil by acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women? Very serious thing. Very serious thing. Now, at this point, I want to interject a few things so that I'm not misunderstood. Um, concerning those, uh, God does have a provision. If you were a non-believer and you were called into the kingdom while you were married to a non-believer, God has a provision for that. He has a provision to sanctify that marriage. Doesn't mean that that husband goes to heaven, but there's a special sanctification. Let's take a look at this in 1 Corinthians 7. But we're not probably won't read this part, but if the unbeliever leaves, you're to let him leave. And you're not under bondage. Later on it says that. First um, Corinthians seven, verse thirteen. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband, and he consents to live with her, let her not send her husband away. That means don't divorce. That's what that meant. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. There's a special setting apart. Doesn't mean there's not going to be problems, but God called you in that state, and he's, he's, he's on your side. He's on your side. We pray for the whole household, like, uh, like Lydia, right? We pray for the whole household, like the jail, Philippian jailer. We pray for everyone to get saved, right? And so he says here, um, yet the un- if the unbelieving one leaves... Let him leave. For the, the brother and sister are not under bondage. That means marital bondage, by the way. We'll see it later on in such cases, but God has called us to peace. 
For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each one in this manner, let him walk, and thus I direct in all the churches. And again, I want to encourage you, if you have failed, God's gracious. He said, Jesus, there's no sin that is too great to be forgiven. And God will sometimes even mitigate those consequences in his grace. He's a gracious God. But he will use you if you're willing to turn or follow him, even though there might be some lasting consequences. So with this in mind, this leads me to ask another question. Why would somebody want to marry a foreign wife? Why would someone want to marry an unbelieving wife? Why? Well, first of all, uh, your obedience and loyalty to the Lord is not your priority. Uh, let's turn to Ezra chapter 9. Here it talks about those who married foreign wives versus those who didn't. And we're going to see something important about those who didn't. Something important. Ezra chapter 9. Now when these things had been completed, the princes approached me saying, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands according to their abominations. Those are the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with peoples of the lands. Indeed, the lands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. That means the leaders were, by the way. And when I heard this matter, I tore my garment, my robe, and pulled out some of the hair of my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Then, notice this, everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel on account of this unfaithfulness of the exile gathered to me, and I sat appalled until the evening offering. There were those who trembled at the word of God. So I say, if you're willing to marry an unbeliever, uh, obedience and loyalty to the Lord and his word is not your priority say that right now. Your walk isn't right. Uh, we know from Second Corinthians, I read this earlier in chapter 6, we're not to be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and loss? There's nothing, right? What fellowship has light and darkness? The only way you're going to get along well is if you're like them. You know, that's the way it is. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial? What is common, a believer with an unbeliever? This New Testament. Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God says, I will dwell in them and among them I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore come out of their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will welcome you. And I'll be a father to you. And you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of flesh, spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. So if you're living a worldly lifestyle, you certainly entertain marrying someone who is worldly and doesn't know the Lord. Or maybe it's just a physical attraction. Samson, great example. He, She was Delilah, the same phrase. She was right in his eyes. Get her from me, Dad, basically. Bad news, bad news. And the dad, Judges 14, you can read this on your own time, said, well, aren't there enough daughters under, among the Jews, basically? Paraphrasing? That you've got to go after a, a, a foreign woman? After a Philistine, you got to do that? Don't let attraction or your emotions justify sin. Don't let it happen. Don't let your attractions or your emotions justify sin. Notice how evil it is. Back to our passage, verse 27. 
do we then hear about you having committed all this great evil? What's the great evil they did? They married foreign wives, right? By acting unfaithfully against our God by marrying foreign women. Unfaithfulness against God. You're being unfaithful to the Lord. It's a very serious thing. You're being, you're, you're being unfaithful. It's great evil. It's great evil. Do we hear you're doing this? By doing this? And again, if you have failed, you need to admit it was a great evil. It was a great evil. And I was unfaithful, Lord. Forgive me. God will forgive you. And he will be gracious. And he might mitigate some of those consequences. He'll use you to help others so that they might not fall in the way that you did. God's a good God. God's a good God. You know, often we fail, all of us fail in different ways, and we sow to the flesh. We are going to reap from the flesh. But if we stop sowing to the flesh, that reaping hopefully will end, and we will sow to the Spirit. We'll eventually reap from the Spirit. So yes, you may be reaping from the flesh, but sow to the Spirit, you'll eventually reap from the Spirit. So then, God's gracious, God's merciful. Nehemiah is a good leader. He's addressing sin in the congregation. He is confronting it head on, really head on. And again, let me say this to leaders in the church who are called to address these things, who are called to watch over the flock. If you're a godly leader, you're going to be willing to look and address things for good, no matter how uh, difficult it is. And we have this book as instruction. Now, as we finish up, notice... God leaders also immediately drive out leaders who defile the ministry. Now, Nehemiah, he confronted them. He, he reproved them with the word of God. He didn't drive them out. These were the people. Okay, He confronted them. He reproved them. Now, notice what happens in verse 28. Even one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Hornite. I'm, I'm almost having a hard time catching my breath here. If you've been in Nehemiah, you know who, San, to, to, who Sanballat is. He is the consummate enemy of uh, Israel and God and Nehemiah. The Horonite, that spoke of a portion, an area in Moab. He was a Moabite. He was a powerful man, uh, probably the governor of Syria, possibly. Very powerful man, an enemy of God's people. He continually fought against Nehemiah and the Jews. He's an extremely evil, powerful Moabite. It can't get any worse than this, can it? Because look at what it is. He says, even, he's still talking about the evil that's being done. He's going to expand on that evil and greater films. Even this, even this, one of the sons of Jehoiada. Now, Jehoiada would be the high priest. He's the son of Eliashib. And then, you know, guess what? One of his sons would be the high priest. This is the high priestly line. This is a serious issue. Even one of them was a son-in-law of Sanballat. That meant that his grandson of the high priest married Sanballat's daughter. This is crazy. Poor Nehemiah. Poor guy. And he comes and sees this. He sees this evil. And so what does he do? What does he do? It can't get any worse than this. What does he do? End of verse 21. So I drove him away from me. You just put a chair up next to that, by the way. There you go. The wind is opening our door here. Or you can turn the latch. Okay, perfect. So he says here, so I drove him away from me. Godly leaders drive out worldly leaders who have infiltrated the church. They drive them out. They drive them out. They drive out worldly leaders who have infiltrated the church. They don't let them stay. 
They don't let them stay. You see, we have had an all-out infiltration, I spoke of this earlier, of churches with worldly leaders bringing in worldly ways and friendship with the world, which is hostility towards God. They're enemies. They bring in strange fire like Nadab and Abihu. And so what needs to happen? Those of us from whom the end of the ages have fallen, what, what is this instruction do we get from this? So I drove him away from me. He drove the one who actually, him, not speaking of, of Sandot, not speaking of, speaking of the one who had intermarried. That's the context, that grandson of the high priest. And then notice what he does, because Nehemiah is an obedient man to the Lord. He knows God's word. He doesn't drive out the high priest or his son who would be a high priest. He doesn't drive them out, and we'll see in a minute why he doesn't do so. There's some interesting things in the Old Testament. Notice what he says in verse 29, remember them. It's not just saying, remember that guy. It's talking about the line, I believe. Remember them. The implication is that they have approved this. They've gone along with this. Remember them, oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. You see, Nehemiah is a good guy. He is not going to um, uh, disobey God's word. Uh Exodus 22:28. you should not curse God nor curse a ruler of your people. The Apostle Paul uh, started to speak badly of a guy in Acts 23, the high priest, and he, he didn't realize it. And he goes, I didn't realize he was a high priest, and he quotes this verse. You see? The reality is, Nehemiah said, God, you deal with this. You deal with this. Remember them. Remember them in judging them, by the way. He said that before concerning Sanballat and them, right? Remember them. Remember them, oh my God, because they've defiled the priesthood and the covenant. He's saying, remember them, and I believe in judgment. Godly leaders act rightly. They get out that wickedness, but they call upon God to judge the things that only God has the right to judge. And they do that. Nehemiah did so. And why? Because they defiled the priesthood. That's pretty obvious. That's the the Levitical priesthood. They defiled it by having an intermarriage with a Sanballat's daughter. Bad, not, not only not only foreigner, but a bad bad one, bad enemy of the Lord. They also defiled what we see here. That's interesting. The covenant of the priesthood. And I was like, what is what is that? What's the covenant of the priesthood? Very interesting. In Numbers 25, when the people played the harlot with the daughters of Moab, and they enjoyed themselves with Baal of Peor, Baal of Peor. When Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the high priest, saw the debauchery of two of them, he came with a spear and pierced the man and woman. And that stayed God's vengeance from going upon the people. And from there, God made a promise, a covenant of perpetual peace and a perpetual priesthood. And so that's what I believe is this covenant. It was in the context of unfaithfulness, but a righteous action, a righteous action to stay that unfaithfulness. You see, and so he says here, long explanation, the, he had, they had defiled the priesthood, they had uh, 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 defiled the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. They were uh, those who served in the temple, did all the tasks, singing all those things, defiled. Lord, judge them, judge them, take care of it, because they've defiled it all. They've defiled it all. And so notice what he does. Thus, 30, verse 30, I purified them from everything foreign, all kinds of stuff he had to purify, sent everything foreign. Uh, them, speaking of the priesthood in that context, Levites, that whole thing, and appointed duties for the priests and Levites. Hey, they're getting back to their task, getting what they should be doing. 
should be doing. And I arranged a supply of wood that's for the offerings, appointed times for the first fruits. He's getting the, 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 the temple to function again rightly in its reason, which is to worship the Lord, to worship him, getting it to function rightly. And when our churches are defiled with worldliness, it's not worship of the Lord, it's worship of man. It needs to be reinstituted. The right things need to be taken care of. There needs to be cleansed out all that foreign, worldly stuff. Nehemiah is a great example of godly leadership. And so notice, coming to the end of this after restoring the ministry, purifying it and restoring it, he says in the end of our book, Remember me, O my God, for good. Now, Nehemiah, Nehemiah isn't saying... Um, isn't saying God don't forget anything. God doesn't forget. His request is that the Lord would respond appropriately based on all he's done. Remember me for good. And he's done good. And remember me for good. You know, it's a prayer for the Lord to respond in appropriate fashion. In appropriate fashion. You know, God is not so unjust to forget your work and the love which you've shown for his name, towards his name and having ministered and still ministered to the saints. If you are in leadership or in a position where you have to take righteous action, not self-righteous action, but God is leading you to obey his word, it's hard. It's difficult. And you need the Lord to remember you, to be on your side in a sense. You know he is, but to, but to, but to, your, that request for him to, to take action. Take action for good. Take action for good. So be praying for your leaders that God would bring good upon them that they would respond appropriately, they would trust and obey the Lord, and especially in those moments of great difficulty. So then, what are our lessons here? So many, I wish I could summarize the whole book, we'd be here another few hours. But uh, godly leaders immediately confront sin that threatens the congregation. This threatened the whole existence of Israel, by the way. It threatened it. It threatened it. Very deep sin, deep unfaithfulness. Godly leaders immediately drive out those who defile the ministry. They drive them out. Godly leaders then purify and restore the ministry. And they do so relying on the Lord for good. For good. May we learn. And so may we not, uh, those who are not leaders, may we not yoke ourselves with the world. May we not uh, dare uh, approve of our children doing so. May we warn them rightly. May we teach them in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Uh, may we be gracious when people failed. May we point them to God's grace and God's restoration, but yet with consequences, but God's gracious restoration. May we point them to the Lord. May we point them to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and I thank you so much for forgiveness of sins through your son Jesus. Thank you so much. And Father, I thank you for the lessons that we've learned through this book of Nehemiah. Lord, thank you for Nehemiah's great example, Lord. I pray we are instructed by it positively. And Lord, I pray that we are also instructed uh, to not do the things that these Jews did, that we would remember your word when we are tempted to yoke ourselves with the world, when we are tempted to, to, to be in agreement in areas where we should never agree. Lord, I pray that we would understand so clearly that the companion of fools will suffer harm, that uh, we would not be deceived. Good com bad company corrupts good morals. May we be a light. And may we be salt to those who need you desperately, but we, may we not yoke our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. And John, if we could sing, because it's all through Christ that we're able to do this, would we sing, I will sing of my...